Alrighty, here look we go. This, look at this new, um, look at this, um, I haven't been back since the redesign to this app. Uh, yeah, this is much better. There's space between the mute and the leave stage, so we're not gonna make that mistake anymore. Really? I don't see any redesign on my version of the app. Do I have to maybe do an update or something, or did it just come to you without doing anything? No, I, I didn't do, I don't know, like, I didn't purposely do anything but yeah the the buttons at the bottom are different like the leaves there's a tab there's a uh there's a um like a de uh, you know like a row at the bottom and then like the leaf stage thing is like you know here i can i'll send you a picture I, oh, I believe you i don't need to see the picture Nah, it doesn't interest me that much it's it's pretty interesting <laughs> but i'm jealous i'll, I'll, I'll uh, wait with bated breath here, I just I, uh, I just sent it to you by by Twitter. You can see the now. Well, now I mean it solves the big problem of accidentally not kicking yourself off the stage when you try to mute it. So that won't happen anymore, at least for me. All right. Well, that's helpful. Um. All right. So uh, this is an emergency uh, call-in edition. I think we've jokingly done emergency editions in the past, but this might be an actual one, or at least. It's of uh, somewhat high uh, importance uh, that we thought we should do one tonight. And um, I don't know, like, what's, uh, what's, what informs your thoughts as to why this is something resembling an emergency-type situation? Mm, so, I mean, we're going to – I mean, the question was what Russia was going to do. Um, it's in pretty bad shape. It has bad, bad manpower issues, apparently. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's losing territory lately. It lost, it spent all this, uh, time and, you know, uh, all these, they lost all these men fighting for this, uh, area that it just gave up without a fight. Um, and so people thought, I mean, people, I think thought that that was going to happen. The technology was coming from the West was going to keep, uh, coming and the support. Um, and so like the question was, what were they going to do? Are they going to mobilize? So they're going to, they're going to partially mobilize, um, try to get a uh, three three hundred thousand uh soldiers and you know and putin basically said you know we'll use whatever means possible to uh defend ourselves there's also going to be annexation i mean this is i think the biggest thing is that they're going to have uh votes on uh in four in the four regions uh, that russia occupies to join russia and you know apparently they're you know i don't think anyone believes that they're going to uh you know, they're going to end up with anything but, you know, the, the, the desire to join Russia. So, um, and then like, you know, if they can't defend that with conventional weapons, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, that is, I mean, that's the end of like negotiations. Russia cannot give land back. Uh, I don't think Ukraine can accept uh, Russia uh, just annexing territory, um, you know, other than Crimea, which people got used to and was done, you know, bloodlessly. This is like in the midst of a war where they're going to claim these, you know, these regions. They don't even control the entirety of these regions like Donetsk and uh, uh, Zephyrisia. So, like, you know, this is this is bad. I don't know, like, what like i you know we we I, you know this is something that i think we foresaw that like we were going in this direction where there's going to be no compromise and potential for escalation uh but it's just becoming like clearer like what the doomsday scenario is going to look like and how we get there yeah so after that uh, counteroffensive was successful earlier this month and you and I were both being demanded to show our faces and give some kind of statement as though we were invested 
in the inability of the Ukraine military in conjunction with the U.S. and other NATO forces to launch a successful counteroperation. Um, one thing that I noted, and I think we talked about this on the call in last week, was the euphoria and the jubilation and the triumphalism associated with the apparent success of that counteroffensive, at least in the Kharkiv area. That didn't strike me as particularly well-founded if your hope is that the war actually ends and a least bad scenario eventuates. Because from the outset, most people who are sensible and have discussed the question of escalation seem to agree that one fairly viable escalation scenario is if Russia actually does incur defeats on the battlefield and then has its back up against the wall in some sense. And therefore, because it assigns existential stakes to the conflict, it, or Putin rather, believes that there's no other option but to escalate in some dramatic fashion. And so when you had the media last week and journalists and politicians and everyone else whooping with glee that this counteroffensive was so triumphant, I mean, my immediate thought was, okay, to what end? I mean, what good outcome are you thinking this is going to result in? Because this seems to me to be another link on that escalatory chain that people have been warning about for months as potentially leading to a doomsday scenario. And, you know, in Putin's uh, speech today, which, you know, I read, I'm not, I guess we're not supposed to be allowed to read, um, I guess we're, just, we're not supposed to read Putin's actual words because that's, you know, taking him at face value or that's promoting his propaganda or something. But it seems pretty useful to me to actually read the words so you can evaluate them and understand what he's saying or what at least he publicly says is guiding his motivations because, you know, I, I don't really buy the premise that anytime a politician or world leader says anything, it ought to be immediately discounted as in no way reflective of their actual motives. Um, so here's one thing that was that struck me that Putin said. The goal of that part of the West, meaning the U.S., the U.K., uh, and he, he referred to Washington, Brussels, and, and London. The goal of that part of the West is to weaken, divide, and ultimately destroy our country. So he is saying that there is the ultimate existential stake here, which is that if Russia doesn't win in Ukraine, that means the destruction of Russia. And because I've been in this vortex over the past couple of days around World War II um, and been sort of bludgeoned into revisiting some of the literature and contemporaneous reports about various aspects of World War II, a parallel that immediately sprung to mind to me is that over the course of 1941, 
as U.S. involvement in the European theater was gradually escalating. You know, there was this naval warfare. The U.S. had launched a occupation of Iceland in July of 1941. Lend-Lease was ramping up in its intensity. And, of course, the U.S. hadn't formally declared war at that point, but Roosevelt's biographer said that Roosevelt's policy was to wage war without declaring it because there was still a fairly robust skepticism of U.S. intervention at that point. So Roosevelt had to employ many techniques of deception to prevent the public from apprehending that the U.S. actually was engaged in warfare in the European theater. Um, And coincident with this, uh, Hitler began to uh, intensify his preoccupation specifically with the U.S. and blame the U.S., for seeking to exterminate Germany, destroy Germany. Um, And therefore, those were the existential stakes, according to Hitler. Now, I'm not analogizing that to present day as some sort of perfect continuation of that existentialist dynamic. But uh, pretty clearly, there is existentialist language being invoked, which again reinforces this idea that there's no like happy medium outcome here seemingly. It's either total defeat for one side or another. That was specifically what you'd think you'd want to avoid in service of some sort of broker diplomatic settlement if you were concerned about what a uh, zero-sum outcome would actually entail, which seems pretty clearly to be you know, massive destruction. And, you know, you know, Putin threatened nuclear use today. Now, I've, I've seen people saying, oh, even though Putin explicitly said this is not a bluff, he is bluffing. Well, I don't know how you know that. I mean, are you in his head? I, this, this whole methodology of pretending like you're Putin's personal psychologist and therefore you know what is going on inside his head because you have this unique perspective. It's just a whole bunch of psychobabble and claptrap. When he says he's not bluffing, I don't, I, mean, I hope he is insofar as I hope there's no nuclear use. But I don't see much basis to believe he's bluffing other than this misplaced certainty that uh, pundits and uh, journalists and think tankers and such seem to have because they want to justify further U.S. intervention into the conflict, which is only going to get us further and further up the escalatory, escalatory ladder. Yeah. Look, I mean, if, if he... So what's scary about this is I you know, wrote on my Substack today, it's like Putin knows all this. I mean, Putin, in this speech... Um, you know, makes the nuclear threat in the same speech where he, um, you know, says he blesses the referendums that are going to go forward in these regions of Ukraine. So he, like, he must understand that, like, you know, he says we're going to defend Russia with, you know, whatever we have and we're not bluffing. Like, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's just continue to bluffing and maybe he'll just annex these areas and then he'll just be like, Ukraine will take them over and he'll shrug his shoulders and say, man, my bluff failed. You know, I, I give up. Uh, you know, I I really suck as a leader. Um, but that seems that seems unlikely. Like it's like, you know, he's sort of he's he's do, he's playing a 
you know, it's like a game where you like tie your hands, right? It's like you're you're doing this thing where you're saying, okay, like this is going to be the line, and this is what's going to happen, and I'm, you know, and you might hope that he's bluffing, um, but again, you know, why, why, you know, why, why not? I mean, you could you could easily see him convincing himself um, that this is, you know, the nuclear weapons is his only trump card to potentially uh, hold on to the territory that, that he's that he's claimed. I mean, the, the annexation is a serious, I mean, it's a serious thing in Russia. I mean, it's a serious thing in any country, right? They change the, I mean, they'll change, I was reading that they would change the constitution basically uh, to just include these areas. And so like, you know, it, it's, it's not prudent. Will any other leader um, ever just give up territory from Russia? I mean, does any, what any leader of America do that if if Trump had seized territory from somewhere, would, would Biden give it back? Um, or if China, I mean, it, it's just impossible to imagine. And so this is bad. I mean, this is bad. It's like, I'm trying to like, imagine like what a non-nuclear escalation looks like. like okay. Maybe if Russia actually does well on the battlefield, but I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's much evidence that they, 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 that they will. I mean, they've been, you know, they haven't advanced in, in months and have only been retreating. Um, and they're, problems you know they have serious problems here um and so i you know you assume that ukraine's continue getting support ukraine is going to make some advances somewhere um and i think the time is on ukraine's side um and you know the question is you know how do we you know what happens i mean do we do we get this escalation like what's what's the theory what's the theory here i mean the theory is okay putin goes away putin goes away um okay no evidence that that's going to happen Putin gives up with his tail between his legs and say, I suck as a leader. I made this big mistake and I'm sorry and I'm just going to go home. Like, the thing that I said, like the future of Russian civilization hinged on has not been accomplished and has actually been a failure. So like I'm allowing Russian civilization to fail in its you know, cosmic destiny. Yeah, I mean, and he's talking about, you know, uh, he's talking about Nazis and, you know, the people of uh, – uh, the you know the the Russian speaking areas of Ukraine and you know I don't think there's any reason to doubt that he believes uh, this stuff you know people are you know people believe all kinds of things and this is not the craziest thing in the world to believe that there are uh, Russians um, speakers in Ukraine that uh, uh, support Russia I mean there's obviously a lot of truth to that um, and so. You know, I mean, yeah, after telling the public this, they're just going to say, you know, we, we, you know, we, we're leaving Ukraine, you know, we, you know, we're sorry, you know, we, this was all a big mistake. We're going to leave them to the Nazis and the, uh, Benderites. I mean, it seems, seems unlikely. Leave them to be, leave them to be genocided. That's what, what that would mean, according to Putin. According to Putin and according to a lot of people in, in Russia. Yeah, that's what they've been, they've, that's what they've been selling to the... Uh, and also, remember, this option that Putin took, the apparent partial mobilization, now maybe, maybe that will like inevitably lead to a full mobilization. I don't know. But at least in the terms that it was put today, that's a moderate response, relatively speaking, considering other demands that have been placed on Putin for what to do in light of that counteroffensive last week. So he could have gone much further given what some of his domestic critics have been saying recently. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, you know, I, I've listened to some guys, uh, uh, Rob Lee and Michael Kaufman uh, and Dmitry Alpovich uh, today, and they were saying that it, it's like it's this. It's basically hard for Russia to do like a full mass mobilization. They don't have the infrastructure for it, or, or whatever. I don't know. I'm not an I'm not an expert in in, in this stuff, but you know, there's political. Um, there's a political dynamic here, right? Where uh, 
where, you know, you have to, you, you know, you can't just, you know, draft everybody and, you know, the, you need support, you need public support. And, you know, we're going to find out sort of, you know, whether, you know, this is, uh, this is going to work well. I mean, you know, uh, conscri- you know, conscription armies, and this is not officially a conscription army. It's like calling up reservists, but the reservists, you know, apparently can be just somebody who fought in the Russian army a long time ago and is now getting, you know, basically being forced into service. Uh, those might not, you know, those might not make the best fighters. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see what, what the effect of the actual mobilization is. It probably helps Russia uh, on the battlefield. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the stuff is hard to predict. But, you know, if Ukraine, I mean, if Ukraine makes advances, I mean, and it threatens what's considered Russian territory at some point, that, that's how you get the, uh, that's how you get the, that's how you get the nuclear Armageddon. I mean, that's like the clearest, you know, this was foreseeable from the start. And, uh, you know, I hope people are thinking, you know, I hope people in positions of power are thinking carefully about this. I mean, there's you. There's the, yeah. And, the, and just to, and, uh, just on the subject of why the annexations in particular are so significant, my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's because, you know, once those provinces are annexed and become part of Russia proper, um, that will mean that places where active warfare is underway, like Zaporizhia has been shelled, is being shelled every day as far as I know, and that's where that nuclear power plant is, where there's been all, that, all the hullabaloo. Um, so now those, that warfare is not going to be occurring on territory that is considered by Russian legal standards to be just a war zone. That's going to be occurring on Russia. So there are going to be attacks on Russia proper. And presumably, that entails a wider range of tactics that the Russian military might employ. Um, hence, Putin warning about the prospect of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, another thing that struck me about the speech is that, you know, it's, you know, there's a paradox here because if you mention anything that Putin says in terms of what his stated justification is for implementing a new phase of escalation in the war, then you'll be accused of somehow just repeating credulously what he's saying without due skepticism or something. Um, But the point in, at least my, pointing out all all these months, the recurring increments of escalation, escalation that were clearly observable, was only in like a neutral way or as neutral as I can to, um, to, to, to point out the growing peril that was seeming to be on display. And so, you know, for months, I've been told that clearly escalatory actions that were, that have been taken as a result of U.S. policy, such as the employment of these longer-range missile systems um, and just the general subsidization limitlessly of the Ukraine military, these were leading to es- you know, increments of escalation that people were being badgered not to recognize um, and you know, being inundated with propaganda t- saying that it wasn't escalatory. So here's what Putin said in the speech. The West has gone far too aggressive 
sorry, the West has gone too far in its aggressive anti-Russia policy, making endless threats to our country and people. Some irresponsible Western politicians are doing more than just speak about their plans to organize the delivery of long-range offensive weapons to Ukraine, which could be used to deliver strikes at Crimea and other regions. Such terrorist attacks, including the use with the use of Western weapons, are being delivered at border areas in the Belgorod and Kursk regions. NATO is conducting reconnaissance through Russia's southern regions in real time and with the use of modern systems, aircraft, vessels, satellites, and strategic drones. So all these months, I've pointed out, oh, look, there seems to be this recurrence of attacks that are coming from the Ukraine military, which is being subsidized by the U.S. inside Russian territory in these border areas. That seems like it could be interpreted as an escalation and therefore prompt Russia to escalate in turn, right? Or, gee, first, when this war started, the U.S. was supposedly just sending, you know, small arms and uh, javelin missiles. And, you know, it was supposed to be just this limited... uh, provision of weaponry for mere purposes of self-defense in the immediate face of an invasion. But, you know, not, sh- not long after, it's being upgraded to heavy artillery and U.S. facilitating tr- tank transfers and um, also these longer and longer-range missile systems, which, gee, I don't know, could be perceived by Russia to be an escalatory step that could then in turn motivate them to escalate. And even saying that, which is a fairly just neutral, descriptive observation, that's totally forbidden as far as I can see in just popular discourse. And so even though so much of this was, force, uh, was easily observable in real time and foreseeable in real time, and these worst-case scenarios have been discussed by you and I on this show for months – it hasn't really broken through to much of the broader public because there's still such this relentless propaganda tsunami and the enforcement of orthodoxy that it, it's been you know, forbidden to even think in these terms. But actually, you know, when people across the political spectrum, like everyone from Marco Rubio to Joe Biden at times, has said that you know, at least variations of that this is the most fraught period that we've been in in terms of the prospect of nuclear destruction since the Cuban Missile Crisis. It seems like in light of that, you might actually want to be prudential in following developments of that sort of escalatory spiral. But it's just been like a nightmare to be able to, to even attempt to do so because it automatically invites this wave of attacks. And maybe I'm overly personalizing it because I've been at the brunt of these attacks. But the, the point is, it was never about like me having some personal stake in this. It was about trying to analyze things as objectively as possible. Not that I don't have opinions, but you can objective, objectively analyze things or dispassionately analyze things without having to become this like full-fledged moralizer. Um, and... None of that analysis has been forthcoming, at least in the precincts that would have made a difference to alter the course of events that we've now reached a ominous um, sort of turning point in. Ukrainian Twitter is pretty wild. I mean, I was also 
Uh, you know, they also go after uh, me too. And, you know, I don't blame them in the midst of a war. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, uh, you know. But, yeah, people are angry. I mean, people are, I don't know, like, maybe they think that the taboo on nuclear weapon use is, like, so high that, like, it's not really a possibility. That, like, no matter what else Putin would do, um, he wouldn't do that, right? And so maybe, you know, maybe that's, that's, I guess, possible. I mean, you know, there was, you know, the U.S. didn't use nuclear weapons and, Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, you know, nobody's used nuclear weapons since 1945. So maybe we've gotten complacent and we just, you know, the, it's like a Cuban Missile Crisis is like, you know, a thing that happens like, you know, it's, it's like an immediate, uh, it's an immediate thing. Well, this is more a, um, you know, this is, a, this is a slow buildup. So I think maybe people just aren't, you know, just they're not in the headspace where they can imagine this, uh, you know, as as a real life possibility. Just because, you know, like I said, it happened, you know, once in history, you know, twice two two nuclear uh, weapons uh, were used in 1945, and you know they're just complacent, but they're making this. You know, there was a tweet by Max Boot today. Did you see this? Where he's like, you know, Putin knows that, like, you know, if he loses this war, it's over for him. Oh, we get worse thing. It's like, okay, okay. Like, if he knows that, then like, why are you celebrating that, you moron? Like, that, you know, he could, that that's he could take the rest of the world down with him. And you know, it's like they're just going off emotion. I don't know. I, you know, I'm more. I'm, you know, I'm interested in sort of Ukraine here because, you know, it's their country that potentially would get nuked. Um, you know, I don't know what the U.S. would, you know, but they, but they, but they seem, you know, uh, uh, you know, they seem to be in the same headspace as, as Americans are. And, you know, I don't know just how seriously, you know, like American leaders are thinking about, you know, where this is going. I just, I mean, I just want an explanation. I want a simple explanation of like what it looks like. You, you know, you could say Putin, nobody says Putin's going to be overthrown anymore. I mean, there was some, that was something people talked about at the beginning. You know? Just like, I, I want like someone to like write this story, like write it as like a you know piece of fiction, like explain like a news story of like how, you know, this war ends in a peaceful way um, or not a peaceful way, but a way without, you know, terrible escalation or terrible, you know, so, you know, something that's realistic given the negotiating, um, perspective of both sides it's not a catastrophe for humanity I, I would be interested in reading that yeah you know another factor here is the perversion of language like from the beginning it's been disclaimed that supporting the limitless provision of higher and higher grade weaponry is a pro-war position to hold even if the position you hold is expressly intended to facilitate higher and higher intensity warfare. Apparently that's not a pro-war position anymore just because you think it's a good position. So they can't separate whether something is good in their estimation versus whether something is just descriptively pro-war or escalatory, right? And so it's created this political climate where the consequences of what people are plainly advocating get deliberately obscured because of you know I'm a I'm an enlightened liberal or you know I'm a moderate Reagan loving conservative of course I'm not just capriciously pro war even though everything that I've been supporting this entire time has been expressly intended to facilitate additional warfare right so I mean with just that kind of basic perversion of language that has dominated for seven months, 
you know, it's, it's, it's not surprising to me, <laughs> unfortunately, that you can't even get a handle on what now people think is supposed to be the best outcome here. Um, you can't get them to write that fiction story which you're saying you'd like to read. Um, they're just kind of bumble, you know, uh, bumbling ever forward into like an abyss. Um, and so, yeah, it's just uh, hopefully, you know, if uh, some really bad thing does happen, um, I request that, that being spared so at least I can tell like the remnants of human civilization that it was foreseeable. So it wasn't just this inevitable thing that no one could have prevented or like no decisions along like a certain causal chain led to this eventuality. So, I mean, it was so foreseeable that I have documentary proof every step of the way. <laughs> um, and it's not because I want to claim vindication, but because, you know, it shouldn't be assumed or it shouldn't be understood that the lesson is that stuff like this just can't be prevented if people were screaming day after day that it was preventable. And their case for not worrying about nuclear war is something along the lines of, well, you submit to Putin now, then, you know, somebody, uh, you know, they'll, you know, they'll say, uh, you know, if you, if you submit, then, like, he just takes the rest of he goes from what he has in Ukraine now, takes the rest of Ukraine, then, you know, tries to take the Baltics, and then, and then Poland, and maybe other people realize the nuclear blackmail. You know, if you always go, oh, I'm uh, willing to go to nuclear war over this, then you just submit forever because you don't want nuclear war. Now, I, I don't think that that's uh, right. I mean, I think there's I think there's a case to be made, and maybe I'll write this. And actually, no, appeasement could work. Ukraine is actually a unique thing, and it doesn't mean that, like, we'll have, you know, the uh, Putin or other people... Um, engaging in um, nuclear escalation because they see, you know, the advantage. This has been costly for Russia. This sucks. This is not the, you know, this is not the outcome that they wanted. Um, and, you know, I think at this point they're trying to salvage something uh, out of it. But, you know, this is a, they're, they're in a place of desperation, right? Um, you know, that, that's what I think it would take for them to use nuclear weapons. Um, and then, yeah, I wonder what the U.S. I mean, I wonder what the U.S. would do. It's it's a very interesting question, right? Because it's like there's no playbook here, right? There's we don't know what the emotions of the world are going to look like the day after. I mean, we can only speculate, right? Will people sober up and say, "Oh my God, we got to figure this out," or do we, you know, just keep going? You know, we just go over crazy. We just go keep go crazier, and then you know, uh, and then respond in kind. It, it's it's a frightening thing to think about. We also don't know, you know what's the reaction of China going to be, for example, because Biden just this week, I mean, simultaneously as he's declaring that the U.S. will support Ukraine until a bitter end, he's also repeating for like, I don't know, the fourth or fifth time that the U.S. will go to war with China over Taiwan. So I don't know. I mean, given the instability that is inherent and unpredictability that's inherent in a situation as extreme like that happening, I mean, who knows what? the fallout could be in a variety of different domains. Um, you know, I don't like to invoke world war lightly, lightly, but there's a reason why I've been looking into it lately. Um, and you know, the thing about appeasement, it drives me nuts. And this is a big part of what impelled me to do some of this world war two 
I mean, if you want to call it revisionism, okay, to me it's just largely factual uh, in the presentation of the reality. Um, but people, I mean, a, a big, I think a big reason why some of this discussion around what is actually happening in Ukraine and what the actual effects of U.S. policy are is because there's this ever-present um, cudgel that people can batter you over the head with about, you know, that derives from this cartoon version of World War II-era history that they have in their heads where Chamberlain, like, wasn't even really a person. He's just the embodiment of appeasement. So anybody who seeks a resolution to a conflict that doesn't require military intervention or short of military intervention, they're appeasers. Um, and the, furthermore, their appeasement is so despicable because it's on the order of appeasing a Nazi Germany. And as we all know, the U.S. defeat of Nazi Germany was the most black or white moral success story in all of human history. So anybody engaging in appeasement now is committing a moral wrong on the order of those who would have allowed Hitler to be appeased so he could carry out the Holocaust. I mean, that's basically it. Now, that history is like unbelievably reductive and just like a fairy tale in in in, in in large respect, I didn't follow but, the whole of your uh, the, whole, the whole of your thing. Did you point out that the U.S. could have accepted uh, Jews from Nazi Germany as refugees and they didn't? Like, no, I hadn't. A- I hadn't pointed that out. But you know, you know, I mean, the 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 thing that caused the giant, you know, swarm to the point that, of course, you know, the editorial board at Twitter chose to have me trend was that you know I was in this whole discussion with people about um, I was I was in the in the in this discussion about whether it was necessary or whether it was like incumbent upon me to issue a morally absolute declaration of support for US entry into World War 2 because apparently that is supposed to be the most obvious moral question that has McMeekin's ever faced book, humanity which book Sean McMeekin uh, I don't think so, no. Okay, well, he wrote a book recently uh, in the last year or two called uh, Stalin's War. I interviewed him for the CSBI podcast. You could find that. But it's it's a really good book, really. Uh, you know, really. Oh, you know of, what? I have that. You know what? I have that book. I, I forgot the guy's name. I haven't read it yet, but I have it. It's on my uh, table here. Um, worth reading. It's excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 To if you can. Yeah, okay. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I was getting into the, you know, aerial bombing campaigns that the U.S., conducted in the European and Pacific theaters where it's been demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt with, you know, documentary evidence that the specific intent of those aerial bombing campaigns was to target civilians. It wasn't even that civilians were incidentally killed. It's that there was the the civilian population centers were deliberately targeted first by uh, Britain starting in uh, December of 19... uh, 40, or uh, I believe I have that right, uh, or 41, and then sort of incrementally once the U.S. joined the war, and then by September of 1943, the Air Force Command, the U.S. Air Force Command that was based out of Britain was giving direct orders to, uh, you know, aerial combat units to target civilian 
population center. It's like, I mean, it's not even like beyond, it's like not even disputable that that was the intent. And then, you know, of course, then in the Japanese, in the uh, Pacific theater, that was also even more unambiguously the intent. So if you tally it all up, just the, just the Germans and Japanese alone who were killed by just the aerial bombardment campaigns that the U.S. committed, it's as many as 1.6 million, to say nothing of the fact that nuclear bombs were used for the first and only time in history, at least up until this point. Um, so given that, given that, you know, I'm writing, I mean, I've been, I've been sucked into this, I agree, so I've been, I'm writing a long essay now that hopefully it's going to come out tomorrow, but people should, should read it. Given that, given the deception around the U- U.S. entry into the war, I mean, Roosevelt consciously deceived the public about l- waging undeclared warfare that even his, contempt- his uh, you know, advisors knew was happening but was denied to the public. And also, but the reason that I had the whole firestorm on, on Sunday was because, you know, one person, one guy tried to, you know, take a shot at me by saying, oh, I think, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think U.S. entry into the war is pretty easy to justify because I don't agree with your stance, meaning mine, your stance that we should have just permitted the Holocaust. So I said, I thought this, I mean, I don't know what I thought exactly. But what I said was, you know, sorry to break it to you, but U.S. entry into World War II did not stop the Holocaust, but rather... It coincided with the initiation of the most lethal phase of the final solution stage of the Holocaust. I mean, there's a broad, there's a, a robust consensus in the literature that, you know, you can contest, you could dispute, but it exists in the literature um, that once the U.S. entered the war, Hitler was convinced that his prophecy had come true that he first enunciated in 1939 that at the onset of the next world war, Jews would, the European Jews would be annihilated. Hitler perceived the U.S. entering the war. I mean, Hitler declared, Germany declared war on the U.S. formally in December, but the U.S. had already been at war. I mean, Hitler assumed the U.S. was at war with Germany. By December, Hitler declares war on the U.S. after Pearl Harbor. The U.S. is a formal participant. The, the prophecy has been fully realized. And then shortly thereafter, again, according to robust evidence, the decision on principle to exterminate the European Jews is issued by Hitler. And then it is that decision in principle, which hadn't existed prior to December. Of course, there were mass killings of Jews. There were um, roundups and deportations of Jews. But this phase had not yet occurred where, as a centralized decision, it was decreed that extermination was going to be the only option for the European Jews. Um, And that, at least according to this literature, was precipitated by Hitler's perception of what the significance was of the U.S. entering the war and it becoming officially a a world war. So then there's this conference in January that all the like the Nazi high command organizes where that the practicalities of that order are implemented and then that's when and then throughout 1942 is the most lethal phase uh, 
of the mass extermination campaign. That's the phase of the campaign that people get taught about in school if they're taught about the Holocaust, the gas chambers, you know, the construction of Auschwitz, the, et cetera. Um, so that was my point in replying to that guy when I'm told that, of course, U.S. entry into the World War II was justified because of the Holocaust. I'm simply pointing out that the U.S. entry into World War II did not stop, did not prevent the Holocaust, and rather, it appears there's fairly robust agreement that U.S. entry into World War II may well have accelerated the most lethal phase of the mass extermination campaign against the European Jews. Now, of course, that's a radical thing to say, even though I have, like, Adam Tooze, you know, and others, you know, uh, verifying in just, again, an undeniably robust array of the mainstream peer-reviewed literature that this is a viable chronology. Um, But, you know, of course it creates a firestorm because the underlying supposition is that I'm somehow, you know, denying genocide, which, of course, is ridiculous because I was presupposing the existence of genocide. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's even simpler than that. I mean, I mean, yeah, that, that chronology of, you know, when the, when the Holocaust happened and, you know, when the, most of the mass killing was clearly after the U.S. entered the war. But, I mean, like, you know, it's very, uh, it's very anachronistic to just to say that this is, like, the reason the U.S. entered World War II. I mean, it's like, it's like something we, said, we talked about decades later, right? The U.S. entered World War II uh, because of Pearl Harbor, because of, you know, uh, Roosevelt wanted to get into World War II, not because of anything that was happening to the Jews. It was, you know, part of the uh, idea that Hitler was a bad guy. Um, you know, his, 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 his uh, mistreatment of the Jews, but it was because of, you know, his, his invading of other countries and, and um, uh, yeah, and it was, it was uh, to get the rest of the country uh, to go along with it, he needed, he needed Pearl Harbor, right? So none of it, it doesn't even make any sense. It's like Hitler killing the Jews. It's just, it's just, it's just a non sequitur, right? It's like saying, right. it's like saying, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's like saying you know, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan to, you know, free the women, free the women of Af- I mean, that like became a justification later, but that's not what the U.S. went into Afghanistan for. Right, but but, but, but to say. sorry to interrupt. I get ahead of myself because I'm I've been uh, frenzied about this topic I met <laughs> the past couple of days because you know it's actually been pretty interesting because I've been delving into the literature that I hadn't like I had read in. in increments but I hadn't like systematically reviewed but I did basically systematically review as much as I could have it, uh, of it recently just to affirm the validity of what I had said right but um, my, my point is that if you want to claim that US entry into World War II is a black or white moral issue and then use that analogy to beat people over the head with today to support intervention in uh, Ukraine or whatever, or to accuse people of appeasement or anything else along those lines. That doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up that the black or white moral value you're attributing to U.S. entry into World War II makes any sense at all. Because if anything, at least if you accept that this is a school of thought within the totally mainstream literature, if anything, there's a very cohesive and cogently argued and actually, based on what I can gather, more and more popularly held within the scholarship recently, in the past just 10 years, um, point of view that far from preventing the Holocaust, which if it did prevent the Holocaust, then I can see why you could make this black or white moral argument, right? 
But far from preventing it, U.S. entry into World War II seems to have accelerated the Holocaust into this most, most lethal stage with the gas chambers and the systemized mass extermination that most people are familiar with. Now, of course, that'll get spun into me saying that uh, the Nazis aren't responsible for the Holocaust or the U.S. caused the Holocaust. Not saying that. Just talking about how you know, this, this black like or white moral like, description of virtue to the U.S. entry to the World War II on the basis of the Holocaust is, is, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. You know, it's like it's like a singularity of stupidity. If you're trying to talk about World War II and Hitler and the Holocaust and like the Ukraine war at the same time, I mean, I don't I don't envy you. That is a different, you know, that's a difficult, you know, to say anything um, and not be mobbed by like, you know, stupid people. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I think that you, that's an uphill battle. It's probably worth maybe it's worth writing out. But I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I, I could see why, the, you know, this wouldn't go well for you on Twitter. <laughs> well, you know, I mean. How do you judge whether something has gone well or not? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I, I think that everything that I've said has been defensible and correct, and you know, whether that people choose to melt down over that or not is, uh, you know, that's up to them. But yeah. you know, I think you know the the the, rel- the relevance here is actually pretty. It's actually pretty pressing in terms of the relevance, though, because you know, again, insofar as that analogy. Kept getting invoked. But, well, so what, what, what are you going to argue against when you write that article that the, the that the U.S. Uh, entered World War II to stop the Holocaust, or the U.S. stopped the Holocaust? I mean, does anyone, no one says that? I mean, like stupid people on Twitter. Like, well, no, no I, mean, what I'm, I mean, the, 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 what I, I mean, the base, the basic thesis is that the invocation of U.S. entry into World War II as this black or white moral good that can then be used as an analogy to bludgeon people with today in contemporary debates, the basis for that. Assumption of black or white moral good is. I think that McMeekin's book. I mean, McMeekin's book is the um, uh, is is the best case here because what he focuses on is not the Holocaust, but he focuses on uh, on Stalin. The fact that you know at the outset of World War II, Stalin had invaded you know uh, as many countries as as Hitler. Um, that the, a lot of these countries. Um, they were actually, you know, they were worse off under uh, Stalin than Hitler. That you know, Stalin ended up taking a half of Europe. Moreover, that the U.S., um, you know, and he goes into the land lease and the U.S. Uh, support for Stalin. Beyond, it was beyond what was necessary to, you know, he argues to defeat Nazi Germany. Like, you know, Nazi Germany was on the ropes. Was you know, was nearing its end. And basically, what the Roosevelt administration and the uh, the aid was doing was helping them basically consolidate gains over Eastern Europe. There's also a lot of fascinating stuff about. Uh, China and basically how the uh, how the uh, America like basically the U.S. government. I mean the U.S. I mean it's amazing how riven with sort of communist agents it was and how these communist agents were basically convincing the U.S. to uh, to um, cut Chiang loose uh, in China and basically you know give the communists more of a say in government and not to think Stalin was so bad. Um, and so it really, I mean, it really. Uh, it really uh, sort of uh, it's a skeptical view of the mainstream narrative about World War Two. I think what you're talking about the uh, the Holocaust, and I mean that's like yeah, this is like stupid. Like I, I don't know, I can imagine like Michael McFall. Not that maybe he's not that he's stupid, but he makes very simple, uh, you know, very simplistic arguments that are highly moral moralistic. I can imagine him saying, you know, we have to stand up to Putin like we had to stand up to Hitler and stop his genocide. But like I don't think like anyone who writes like a serious article. Um, is gonna. You know, I think it's a. Argument. I I do think that kind of invocation, like you hypothetically oh, yeah, thought of McCall's doing, is extremely pervasive. 
And just, you know, these Hit, uh, Hitler or World War II or Chamberlain references writ large are a huge impediment okay. to any kind what's of the, rational assessment that? of foreign policy overall, but particularly right now when, you know, we seem to be potentially on the precipice of a World War-style situation in its, in its severity. What is the, uh, what's the, like, when in your experience in this recent thing, uh, what's, who's the most, like, serious or important person that was making this kind of dumb analogy? The dumb analogy? Well, I mean, the, the, the Hitler, you know. Oh, Holocaust, oh God. I mean, it's such a whirlwind of, of just being inundated with people making this analogy that's hard for me even to think of a specific example. Um, I don't know. I'd, ha- I'd have to. I'd have to think about it more. Let me, let me just assure you that it's out there. I mean, it's out. I mean, you don't. I mean, it doesn't strike you as, pl- as intuitively plausible that it's out there that people think that U.S. entry into World War II was an unmitigated, unqualified moral good because otherwise, because it had to be done on account of the Holocaust. I I think that that's one of those folk beliefs. It's like you know, George Washington chopped down the. Cherry tree. It's like a folk belief that like people think, but you know that's, that's. But I don't think it's like something that like a serious person who would write a serious article, uh, you know, find one, find one, and, and see if I'm wrong. But I don't think a serious person writing a serious article um, would argue that. Let me let me think if I could. Uh, you know, like and I can imagine like Max Boot or something, or like Michael McFall, right, making like a passing analogy. Like we have to stand up, but like it would be ambiguous, right? It would be like maybe you're standing up to Hitler because he's invading other countries, and you got to stop him from invading other countries, right? I would like to see any semi-serious person, anybody with, uh, uh, you know, with like uh, credibility, not like uh, some resistance, you know, grifter who's, who's just on Twitter, but like somebody who could write a coherent op-ed or article or an academic or something, um, saying that. The, uh, you know, something about like, this is like standing up, standing up to Putin today is like the way the U.S. stood up against the Holocaust. I, I think it's a dumb thing that dumb people believe is sort of part of the civic religion. But I don't know if like anyone like and So like, you know, it's up to you whether you think that's worth responding to. I don't know if there's any serious person that can argue. Um, OK, I mean, just my perception is that it's an extremely widely held conviction that a significant reason why the U.S. entering World War II against Nazi Germany it ought to be considered an unmitigated moral good is because the U.S. fighting World War Nazi Germany in fighting Germany was fighting the perpetrators of the Holocaust, and okay, so that makes it really good. Here, I just googled uh, Putin, Hitler, Holocaust, Ukraine. And let's see, there's a Washington Post article, Putin's attack on Ukraine echoes Hitler's takeover of Czechoslovakia. Okay, so it's not <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I didn't think you find it difficult to. No, no, but, but this. this actually makes my point because it's talking about Czechoslovakia. It's, it's comparing an invasion of a country to an invasion of a country. Right. It's not saying the I mean, I don't know. I don't have time to read this article right here. But, you know, from the headline, it's not about the it's not about the Holocaust. Let me see. So it does mention the Holocaust. Uh, uh, during the Holocaust, blah blah blah, but it, it's it's just it's about it's about the invasion of Czechoslovakia, right? Uh, so if you could find again, I'm sorry to sorry to be. Uh, I mean, maybe you're right in that I could. I mean, I don't know, but here here let me just be more precise about what I'm saying. And this seems like it's sort of unassailably true to me, but maybe I'm crazy. I agree. I mean, I agree. Uh, I agree. A big reason why when, when when the reason people people think 
it's not even up for debate that it was morally good for the U.S. to enter into World War II. Isn't a huge factor in why that is such a widespread belief, the Holocaust? Uh, I think that, in, that there could be an argument. I mean, I think there could be an argument made that people can make that Hitler should have been. We should have gone to war with Hitler earlier, uh, because no, no, I'm saying was, when the U.S. did go to war. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people. That's a folk belief. I don't know if any serious person, uh, you know, says that. Or maybe it's you know it, it could be along the lines of Hitler. If the U.S. didn't enter World War II and the U.S. didn't support the Soviet Union, Hitler would have you know killed more Jews, which is you know not not the craziest. Okay. Uh, thing to believe. Right. Um, but yeah, okay, I'm, j- I'm just saying, like, you you are above, like, just responding to, like, every, you know, it's like something's retarded and it's, like, widespread <laughs> on Twitter. Like, it's not necessary, it's not necessary to, like, write a serious article on media. But if, if there's something that, like, serious people have said somewhere, then uh, it's worth it. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's maybe it's good to say, you know, here's this, like, folk belief that we don't even question and, like, yeah. here's, like, an, an easy explanation of why it's, you know, why it's wrong and we should be looking at it differently. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's yeah. The latter is definitely a big reason why I've been impelled to to do it. But I think there's also serious people who would make arguments along these lines. But anyway, let's just stop repeating. Let's go to some uh, callers. Uh, Matthew, you're up. Matthew, if you're there, unmute. Bottom right corner. It's now bottom left corner. Am I think. Oh, is it? Okay. I don't know. I haven't seen the update. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, so, uh, Michael, I'm going to 20% agree with you and 80% criticize you in the Holocaust thing. I think you're misunderstanding this literature, although there's a big kernel of truth in what you're saying. So first, Holocaust denial, all that, that's just stupid. Of course, you're not saying that. So let's get that aside and moralism stuff. So... Well, of course, who's not saying that? Because I can assure you that plenty of people said it. I'm not saying that it's stupid. Like, so we don't need to talk about that. Um, in terms like moralistic stuff and that you're Holocaust, it's just stupid. So why would we talk about that? Um, in terms of what this literature is saying, so like, I know it's douchey to say this, but I do think it's still relevant. Have you seen like, the literature I posted? Yes. So we're talking Mike, about the same Michael, literature? Michael, I okay. am a PhD student in history. I read German fluently. Okay. I just like, want to make sure you've seen like, what I posted. Michael, yeah. I know, I know what this literature is talking about. So okay. there are a number of scholars who contend that U.S. entry into World War II precipitated the Holocaust becoming a pan-European thing. That is right. what these people are saying. So they are not saying that exterminations only began, systematic exterminations only began after U.S. entry. In fact, two Jewish communities, the two largest, who together comprise the vast majority of Holocaust victims, uh, Soviet Jews who were shot systematically beginning in June 41, including kids and women and all that, and also Polish Jews, were already marked for killing. The Kelno concentration camp extermination factory was being designed in October 41 before Pearl Harbor. What these people are arguing, and they are serious people and they have, are, they have evidence, is that U.S. entry to the war tri- made the Holocaust become pan-European. It no longer was going to be confined to the Soviet Union or Poland. So, yeah, you, I, that's why I say 20% you have a point. Maybe they're right. They have evidence. They're serious people. Um, but most of the Holocaust had already been determined. Like, they were going to kill the Polish Jews and the Soviet Jews who, who accounted for the vast majority of victims. Because those people, that's just where most of the Jews lived. So the, the key was, will we actually extend this to Western European Jews? 
And that decision was made. These scholars are, I disagree with them, but they're serious. And there are a lot of people who agree with them in, in scholarship. Okay, but, well, I'm not, but hold on. Okay, hold on. Thank you. I'm not misreading the literature, though. I mean, ha, okay, I, you've read, I'm assuming you've read Gerlach, most. right? You've read, yeah, you've yeah, read yeah, Gerlach. Yeah, yeah. He, he argues, okay, so, so when you say, when you say I'm misunderstanding understanding the literature, because I don't understand that, that most Jews were systemic extermination before. was already underway or no, a decision said, had Michael, been made. Michael, Michael, That's listen. not what Gerlach says. No. Gerlach says that as to the European Jews, the mass extermination decision had not yet been made. There were Correct. deportations Correct. underway. The Soviet Jews were being effectively Michael, exterminated. Really, but in really terms of the European like, Jewry, that had not been determined. I, I'm not woke and I do not hate you. So like – and I'm and – I Okay, but I mean – but don't tell me I've misunderstood the literature you if have, I read Michael. a piece of literature and accurately Michael, calm down. It. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's just calm down and talk about it, OK? So what Gerlach means – I think maybe I'm wrong. What Gerlach means is that Hitler is after Pearl Harbor extending it throughout Europe. Before Pearl Harbor, no. And a lot of people agree with him, as you cited, that it wasn't going to apply to the Dutch Jews, right? It, it wasn't yet applying to other Western European Jews, the French nationals um, who were killed later. And then after uh, the U.S. entry, it comes to World War, all the Jews of Europe are marked for killing. That is the argument. The argument is not because there were, bro, there were like plans to open an extermination camp, which nobody contests in Poland for Polish Jews. Hell no, not for like Dutch Jews or whatever. In October 41. So like most of the Jews were already marked for killing. It did expand. They argue. I actually don't agree with them, but a lot of people, but they're serious and they argue this, um, that it expanded throughout Europe. It became a pan-European policy because of U.S. entry. But they wouldn't argue that uh, the extermination hadn't begun. And then one point you were just flat wrong on is. When you're talking about, oh, the, the major killing operations happened right after U.S. entry. That's technically true. I didn't say major killing operations. I said mass full-scale campaigns of the But most Jews. of those killings were already planned before Pearl Harbor. The, 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 this is the main misunderstanding you have. The big thing is that all Jews in Europe are going to be killed now. That is the big change, right? That okay, arguing. so let's – okay. Even if that's the big change, that's a big enough change – in terms of sure, what my point was. that's why I 20% defend you. But, but you have to emphasize... But I haven't misread the literature. The literature... Michael, you have. Of the, in this school... Okay, of, no, I haven't. I have not. I have not. Let me just explain already. to you what the literature says, okay? And I'm not trying to be obnoxious because okay. you're saying that you're a history student. I am, if you're going to accuse I me of misreading the, his, the, the literature, have. that's just false. No. What the literature says is that once the... Decision on principle that the fate of the European Jews was going to be extermination mm-hmm. at, upon U.S. entry into World War II because mm-hmm. Hitler had this prophecy fulfilled, right. according to him. That is when the systemized, centralized – the order for systemized, centralized mass extermination of the European Jews came down – and began to be implemented right, and was enacted say, at but, the conference the following ge- right, that uh, is what January. That is but, what I said, and Michael, that is not a misreading of the literature. Okay, okay. The reason let's let's maybe when, maybe I'm wrong. Let's just talk about this though. I don't disagree with anything you just said. What what my point is is that most were already marked for murder because most happened to be of the two nationalities who already were being systematically killed. Like the Einsatzgruppen in the occupied Soviet Union killed all. Jewish men, women, and children with a teeny fringe of slave laborers as exceptions. They were killing everybody. What no one disputes that. What they dispute is that well, this had this wasn't applying yet to Jews in the Netherlands, right, or France, or even Germany. Although there are some exceptions, but there certainly was systematic killing of 
all uh, Soviet Jews by fall of 91. And I, and I would literally bet my life that Gerlach doesn't dispute that. What he's talking about is this becomes pan-European, kill all the Jews in Europe, every country. Didn't happen until after um, U.S. entry. That's his argument. So that's why I say 20% defense. All right, fine. That's, that's effectively what I said. Well, but the vast majority, because the vast majority were Polish or Soviet, this is where the Jews lived. Like Poland had 3 million. Um, the Soviet Union had even more, had, well, not even more than that. I don't know the exact number. 1.3 million were killed in the Soviet Union. But the vast majority were already marked for death before U.S. entry. Of just, you're talking right, about I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't say that the architecture for the implementation wasn't being put into effect. The point is that what, according to this literature, once Hitler issued this decision, that's when all that architecture was mobilized in a systematic fashion toward mass extermination I, as the final solution. Not, that's what the literature saying, says. No, I'm sorry. Yes, they are. Okay. They are saying it. Do you want to talk about this more? Because I am correct. Like I'm not. I I don't have a moralistic view of his. I mean, obviously Nazis are bad, but I'm not. This particular debate, I'm not coming at moralistically. I'm coming at somebody who literally, like, I'm not making this up. I can corroborate this if you like. Like DM me, who literally is a PhD student studying this stuff and is fluent in German. Like, I live in Germany. That's. I mean, I'm up late in an insane hour because I just finished a chapter of my thesis. Like, which isn't on... Okay, I mean, that's good. I mean, I, be- I believe you no, no, about no, your credentials. I'm just saying that I'm not mis- misreading this literature. Do you think I'm, that I, I just accurately related chance. it. You think there is zero percent... Do you understand my point? Okay, here, here, let's just go through this more in a more civilized fashion. So I'm going to make two claims and you tell me where you think I'm wrong. Because I think um, I, I think these two claims you have either not made clearly or you haven't, or you haven't agreed with. So my two claims are that... Uh, the vast majority of Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were already marked for murder before... But I didn't deny that. I mean, how does that undercut what I said? Well, because, I mean, most of the extermination was already... What specifically do you think I got wrong? I mean, why are you so Lay out in two sentences what I got wrong. Maybe somebody is... So you you implied there was a link between the most ferocious killing operations in 42 and U.S. entry, and nobody, uh, as far as I know, would argue that. Because... Most of the killing was of Polish and Soviet Jews in '42. Okay, right? that's well. Everyone, everyone argues that who's in the literature, okay. literature in the school like, thought that I, I, I don't cited. know what to tell you, but but like I do this for a living. I'm not stupid, so when I speak the language, like I, I've read all of these people, obviously. So I don't know what to tell you. You are misunderstanding it, or at least you're not. Was the most it. lethal? Was the most lethal year of the Holocaust yes, not 1942? But it was, they, the okay, so did U.S. The entry people, into the into the World War II precipitate that? They would. It would have been the most lethal entry. I didn't assert a causal Polish. link. Okay, I did not well, assert what's a the causal point of the link. Okay, yeah, this argument has no point. I mean, this argument has no point, Michael. I think. He, uh, okay, I don't, sorry. I don't I, I, you're sorry, not you're not saying, get, uh, you, so he he's wants to say, Matthew wants to say uh, that most of the Jews who were killed were in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and Poland. And you're saying, and that was going to happen anyway. And you are not disagreeing with that. Right, Michael? All I'm saying is that there's a huge body of literature which says that upon U.S. entry to the war, the most lethal phase of the mass extermination campaign of the Holocaust no was accelerated. Link. You just said there's no causal link with that. and I, I would I, say I, I'm not asserting a causal link. Okay, but the causal link that the literature does assert is some people in the literature, not everybody, 
I wouldn't well, say but, but, I said even though I'm not a certain causal link, you know, there are people who okay, do a certain causal no, link. No, 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 further than I would. Guy, let me make this point. The causal link people assert is that, and Gerlach asserts this. It's controversial, he said, but people, some people agree with him. There's some evidence for it. Is that U.S. entry led to everyone in Europe is going to be killed? Does isn't just the Soviet Union? Isn't just Poland? Everybody. That is, so there is a causal argument made in the okay. literature. Well, there you go. It, That's well, enough but, for me. That, but my point, the reason I said 20% agree, 80% disagree, is because you have to qualify with the fact that I think it's necessary to, if you're going to make this argument, to explain, you can make this argument. Like, I'm not, that's why I said at the beginning, I'm not calling you a denier or saying you're evil for saying this. I'm, I'm just intellectually saying, if you're going to make this argument in an intellectually rigorous way, you have to say, well, yeah, so, but the populations that were already marked for murder were obviously much larger than the all these other Western European populations that were now included. And uh, and then also, like, this is not a fringe argument. It's a serious argument, but a lot of people disagree, too. Like, I would actually say Western Europeans, I have a very revisionist view on this. I would say Western Europeans weren't marked for death until, like, um, almost the, the summer of 1942. Like, it, there was more hesitation with killing. But some people say the because there was clearly a, a phase when, they're killing Eastern European Jews, but they don't believe they they have trepidation about killing German Jews and Western European Jews. And the question this literature is answering is when did that trepidation leave? And Gerlach and others argue that it left with U.S. entry to the war. Okay. So, but okay. Okay. Like, okay. Okay. Thanks, Michael. We got to work. Up. We got to move on because I, I Michael. Know, I mean, Michael. Yeah. I mean, your point. Yeah. I mean, we were so far afield from your point, yeah. which was that uh, you know the U.S. Now you can see what I've been dealing with. Right? <laughs> yeah. So we were. I mean, so I. I yeah, I'm not I saying Matthew's wrong to you know challenge me but no yeah. but i think i think i you know i don't think they're near that far apart but i think it's just this is far from your the relevance to russia ukraine which is ultimately what we care about right this is not a history yeah 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 well i like well, i care about this well, hold on hold on let me, let me just let me, let me just say so even though i didn't assert causality people were denouncing me for having allegedly asserted causality um i didn't go as far as many people in the literature actually go i posted last night an excerpt from a book that was actually published last year called Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War by Brendan Sims of Cambridge University, Charlie Latterman of King's College University. I actually found this book because it was cited by Adam Tooze in a post that he wrote along these lines in, in May. And he said, and uh, in this book, it's causality is asserted. What's asserted well, is, quote, I, whether, I, I, the, I, I, whether the entry of the United States into the war was the decisive factor Michael, here, really an accelerator, it is clear that a primary motivation in context for Hitler's war of annihilation Western and Europe, not, Central European Jewry was his relationship with the United States, okay? So I didn't go as far as that, they're and I don't see Michael, uh, Brendan Sims being Everyone who makes this taken through the woodshed is as a denier. I know you didn't call me that, but, you know. No, I absolutely don't call you. That's stupid. Everyone who makes this argument is asserting causality. There was certain causality, though, about when it became pan-European, not when the Holocaust began. Like, systematic killing began before then. And, and it was... And like, I didn't say everybody. that the Holocaust... And I always said that. I think, I think you could be more... At the very least, you could be... Maybe I'm mischaracterizing your views. Um, I don't think so, but maybe I am. It's, I, I think it's possible. But, may, but at the very least, you should... I think we should... Okay, let's move on. Sorry, America. Matthew. Appreciate okay, sure, yeah. it. Thank you, um, thank you, Matthew. All right, Jenny. <laughs> this, this is the tangent to end all tangents. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the emotion. I wish similar type debate and emotion could cover what's happening with the COVID vaccines and that we saw similar levels of alarm around the deaths, the side effects, the myocarditis and other things that are being reported. Be that as it may, in the comments, <laughs> I dropped a link to Nuclear War Survival Skills, which is a book I have read three times. And it is a powerful 
emotional preparation to just read that book and learn the nuts and bolts of how to survive a blast. And once I started to accept the reality of what would what things would look like the day after, I became much healthier in my approach mm. to this event, should it happen in America or really anywhere in the world, we would all be affected. And so I'd like to see more pragmatic conversations around the realities of us engaging in nuclear warfare, because not everybody would die. And people say, oh, I'm not going to get ready or I'm not going to prepare because, you know, I, who wants to live in that hellscape? Well, most of us will live after a couple bombs go off. It's not like everybody's going to die. And so we really need to think about what that looks like and what we can do now to mitigate some of the issues. Yeah. Okay. I, um, you know, I, I would like to know if school kids are still assigned to read the book Hiroshima by John Hersey. Um, which is a very simple, simply written sort of uh, spare prose book that I read in ninth grade, and it was my the favorite book that I had been was assigned that year, and it's a vivid description of you know not like a gratuitously graphic way, but vivid enough that you get the idea of uh, yeah, I read it too. Yeah, I and, I, and I it, I wonder if that's still assigned widely. It is. My kids read it in high school. Oh, that's good. I read, okay, I read it too, but. You know, it, it. I loved it because it wasn't political. It didn't necessarily yeah. point fingers. It just shared, like, wasn't it like six people's stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. No, I, I would love to see some reality. I feel like, you know, President Biden saying today that they did everything they could to prevent this. That was laughable. It, it no, felt like didn't. his administration was just fanning the flames. Yeah, and, I'm, maybe I'm going to get denounced for asserting causality again, but they, you know, it was clearly a motive. Clearly, U.S. policy was an accelerant to get us to this point. You know, there was a, a, a PSA. Did you see this? I mean, I, I, I saw it belatedly because I couldn't believe that I had missed it. But in July of this year, New York, the New York City Emergency Department put out this PSA video about how to survive a nuclear blast. I didn't see it. No. Was yeah, it? it's like it's like the 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 reviving duck and cover, except you know this time it was a you know a snarky uh, you know young black woman who was you know telling us how to survive a nuclear blast. <laughs> yeah, I think I think civilization is resilient. I know, Jenny. I'm not. I I, I live a life where I, I don't worry about things, and the, most bad things don't happen. But you know, you hopefully it, you'll it, you'll, share, you'll share some food with me when when the time comes. Well, you see Putin talking nuclear today, and there are many people who are affected by that, especially people who live over in the region. And, you know, my heart goes out to them. I'd love to do something to help them. And one of the ways we can help is to just be honest about where we're at and then say, what can, what can we do to prepare? Yep. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks. Uh, walnuts, if that is your real name. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. And I prefer it that way. Dude, you guys have had to deal with some fun people, like vaccine people, nut jobs. Amazing. <laughs> We've got a good crowd, yeah. Can you imagine, like, someone with an, a FISA warrant listening in on this and just having, like, a Xanax because they're sick of this nonsense? I can. Anyway, um, I was looking at what you were talking about. They wouldn't need I a FISA warrant to listen on this. They just need a call-in account. Oh, oh, I know. I know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> if there was whatever. I'm assuming you guys have FISA warrants at this point. Anyway, what I was getting at, though, was... um. Firstly, Richard, I think their chance of nuclear war is really limited. So I was talking to um, Always over here, 
And you had a very mm. interesting thesis statement about, you know, people who wear masks are not likely to engage in war. You remember that one? Uh, did and, I, I? About China? Yeah, yeah. I might have said and, something like that, but I don't know if that's right. I, I, I might have said that as a more tongue-in-cheek Yeah, so I'm just, I was just thinking of, you know, the way he's acting, Putin, the, the long table isolation. And it just seemed like, as a corollary to the thesis, you'd imagine that the combination of his personal conduct and the fact that people like Lavrov have family in the West means that the chance of this actually going nuclear is Well, you could have said the same, that, that guy, this guy who's afraid of COVID wouldn't have uh, launched a war in the first place, right? So he does a lot of, he takes some, he takes some risks, you know, this Putin guy. So, I, you know, I don't know how, it doesn't, I don't know if there's a correlation between not fighting wars and, and being scared of COVID. Maybe there is, but I don't know. You know, Russia is, uh, has, was pretty uh, chill about COVID compared to most of the rest of the world. You know, stuff like masks and lockdowns and stuff as a society. Maybe well, Putin personally wasn't. Putin, Putin personally was hyper No, per- Putin, yes. You're, you're personally right. was pretty careful. But so what I'm getting at, um, so a few things. So I had a pleasure, the distinct pleasure of being in one of the conferences where one of the main physicists who advise the country on ICBM defense was speaking and addressing this whole situation, I think, in uh, April or something. And first and foremost, the way they discussed this, they framed it as, hey, whatever the cost is, it's an invariant cost. This is a cost we had to take upon ourselves. Either way, the invasion was like an act of God, force majeure, completely inevitable. And the cost is entirely invariant. So all we can do now is deal with this cost because, you know, we just have to get ourselves involved in the situation. But moreover, there's a very strong sense of, you know, not viewing the threat as significantly reciprocal. And there is also the fact that when I was speaking to this person, it became readily apparent that, you know, Balaji, uh, Srinivasan had this amazing quote that, you know, um, tweets from 10 years ago, draw more accountability than getting yourself into a war and millions die. And I think a consequence <laughs> yeah. of not having ever done an audit for Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., is that the people who are making decisions have no personal skin in the game when they go in the way of, you know, claiming an offensive. Because everyone's taught in school, Neville Chamberlain, he retweeted, no one's taught in school, Winston Churchill bankrupted the empire, and that's why you had after him Clement Attlee go in and fucking do private equity. Hey, how can I auction off the empire so my whole business doesn't just, you know, go in the red? And I think there is a misalignment of incentives over there, which um, predisposed the states to being overly hawkish in this matter. But there is also the concern over here where, how do I put it? There is no doubt, at least according to me, that the Russian people have no loyalty to the nation the way Americans do because, um, you know, there is not a single Russian you cannot bribe with a billion dollars, amnesty, and we promise to get your children into Yale Law School. Like, I think it was you or someone else who shared that the CIA found that one of the most effective ways to bribe foreigners was to promise their children entry into elite American universities. And given how essentially the Russian elites are all trying to flee the country and get the kids into foreign universities anyway, like this guy never knows which who's going to stab him in the back and just get into like Harvard or something. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Walnut. <laughs> Not only is there no audit of foreign policy, I, I mean, I wouldn't even call them mistakes. You know, disastrous foreign policy that is perpetrated by people in power. Um, 
not only is accountability very seldom ever imposed on people responsible for those actions, you know, there's a constant cycle of rehabilitation for the people who got things so drastically wrong. It's just not, and you know, any of us can get something wrong or be incorrect, right? I'm talking about people whose wrongness directly resulted in the perpetration of mass violence and death for no legitimate cause. Um, And, you know, the media rehabilitates them. The blemished records of politicians gets wiped aside given current political exigencies, which, you know, you can see a certain manifestation of that today. I mean, we were told that U.S. policy in Ukraine was a deterrent. We were told that everything that US, the U.S. has been doing vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine was meant to deter Russia. Now, if the actual practical impact of U.S. policy has not been to deter Russia, but rather Russia has taken progressively more aggressive action in part as a response to U.S. policy, then ought that not to discredit those who were saying that the policy was supposed to be a deterrent? Didn't it achieve the opposite of what they said they were going to achieve? Well, yeah. I mean, I would think so, but don't expect any audit to that effect, uh, much less any accountability. Yeah, and I think what uh, Walnut was saying about the, um, the you know, Putin not being able to trust uh, those around him, I think that's right. I think the level of sacrifice in Russia and uh, Russian society is willing to make doesn't seem all that high. There was an interesting... Uh, there was an exchange, you know, just prisoner exchange today where they, uh, the Azov guys were basically, they, the Russians gave yep. them back. There were 250 of them, and the, and the Ukraine sent 50 people to Russia, including uh, Medchek, uh, Medchek, or however you say his name, uh, the guy who was uh, Putin's party. They basically exchanged their own people, and like, instead of getting more of their own people, they literally imported a Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah, who's like Putin's buddy. So it's like this is this indicates a level of uh, sort of corruption. It's about, you know, it's about Putin and his and his friends rather than, um, uh, you know, people who are important and uh, people who like, you know, actual, you know, regular Russian soldiers who who fought in the war. Um, I haven't seen the details of who those 55 people are. I don't know if it's just uh, Medchik out there. Um, that British guy who was like an extremist who's converted to Islam or something, uh, they let him go as well. The Russians. All right, thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Walnut. Let's uh, let's go. Always. Yep, always. Oh, he's going to talk about the Holocaust to this guy. <laughs> oh God. What? What? I I think Michael Tracy's already spent too much of his life discussing the Holocaust. Okay, we appreciate I that. I found this funny tweet um, where he said like he, he did not be because of or some some garbage like that. <laughs> Are you on an airplane? Wait, what? Something always. Yeah, Sorry, I didn't. I didn't hear what you said. Oh, there's some tweet by you, which where you said like, um, uh, "By due to, I meant coincident with, not caused by, or something really stupid." Well, yeah, I mean, because people were re- because there was one reply I did where I used the phrase "due to," in re- you know, reaction to as relates to like the radicalization of the Nazis' racial policy in the summer of 1941 yeah, as a reaction to U.S. policy, and because I wrote "due to" in a reply to someone, that meant everything I had said was this, you know, unambiguous ascription of causality, which I did not intend, and that was what people were trying to nail me with, but anyway. Yeah, yeah okay, but anyway, you know, um, uh, due to does not mean coincident with when you tweet about controversial topics, you should... It also doesn't, it also doesn't necessarily mean caused by, but people were saying it meant caused by. 
Uh, That's anyway, why I deleted it to clarify, okay? Uh, anyway, uh, my question was more for Richard. I don't, I don't want to uh, get more involved in this um, whole Holocaust debate. He says after he just got involved, but uh, go uh, ahead. Yeah, <laughs> he I, I, I said I don't want to get more involved. I don't want to get more involved. You hear the word more. Okay, uh, so Richard, um, you know, you seem to believe there's like a significant chance for nuclear war between um, Ukraine and Russia. And you justified this by saying, you know, Salem thinks it's 15. But don't you agree that Salem is going to be underpriced because no one's going to like put in huge amounts of money just to get a 15% return over a couple of months or whatever? Yeah, I mean, yeah. The yes, yes tends to be overpriced. But you could you could look at um, Metaculus and it's there's a, a median of 5% and a mean of 8%. So, you know, it says it's and, and what is the Metaculus prediction? Did you spend your... I can go to that right now. Okay, which is this question? Let's go to no, that. No, it's, right. it's a question. Will there be a death? I linked to it in my Substack today. Will there be a death from a nuclear explosion by the end of 2023? Which is, I, I'm taking that as okay. the Ukraine war since that's the most likely uh, place. Okay, I'm looking right now. Will there be at least one fatality? I just to told you what it is. I just told you what it is. You don't have to look at it. I, yeah, I just at least told one you. nuclear fatality um, due to deliberate threat. Me, um, yeah. Meetings 5% means 9%. Okay. Um, okay, so the metaculous prediction, uh, you can't look at it. They don't allow you to. Okay, I, I see, I see. What do you mean they don't yeah, yeah. allow you? <laughs> linked. Your tweet is linked, but you, you have a public figure prediction that's linked to this forecast. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the, yeah, that's right. And that's, uh, I say that in that tweet that they uh, put on metaculous. The same right, thing, right, I pretty much say my Okay, what probability do you give for this question? Uh, I would get, I don't know, man. I would give like, uh, you know, 15, 10, 15. I oh, mean, okay, it's... Richard, okay. I'm 100 to $1,000, 10 to 1 odds. It's not happening. You want, <laughs> you want a 10 to 1 odds? There'll be no nuclear explosion in the, in the world or in the Russia Ukraine war. No by deliberate the nuclear explosion by 2024, causing at least one fatality. Okay, let's go. I'll, I'll, put a, I'll, put a, I'll put a hundred against your thousand. You want to wait, that? wait, is that a del- you, you said deliberate explosion? So not including accidental. Yeah, if someone accidentally nukes somebody, okay. then no. So you, you want to... Okay, okay. Well, are we making the bet? One hundred versus. Well, you're, you're, you're. I, I don't know. You're, you're at an early stage in your life. Do you have a thousand dollars to bet? Uh, yeah. In fact, I have like about. A, I have over a thousand right now in the Venmo. Do you use Venmo? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> How about, okay. Let's do a hundred to a thousand. Okay. Richard. He's betting. He's, he's putting all. Always is putting all his, his uh, Bitcoin earnings on the line. <laughs> yeah. I have a stipend which is down, which is much more than one thousand dollars, Richard. They pay me much more than that. You have a what? I have a stipend. It's much more than one. You have a stipend. That's more what you need it for living expense. I'm sure your stipend is more than a thousand dollars. It doesn't mean you pocket it all. <laughs> all right, I want. I want Richard to win, not because I want there to be a nuclear uh, fatality in the by the end of 2023, because I want always to be like on the street. Homeless just because he <laughs> lost a bet to Richard. Don't I have worry, to go flip burgers and throw up out of school. I have enough money. I have, I have a bunch of money in my All right, thanks always. Now that you have the bet settled, let's move on. Uh, Joseph. Joseph, if you're there. Okay, there Can you, you are. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. Hey, how you doing, fellas? Um, this. Uh, I kind of caught the tail end of your discussion. Uh, but uh, one quick thing about the Holocaust thing, I'll get to the real discussion. Um, the it, It's very important to keep your bravery, Michael. Speak your mind on these issues because this is a very delicate issue. Um, and debating people that have PhDs in Holocaustology or whatever 
It's about as useful as dating, uh, debating a gender studies major on gender. So if anyone out there wants to read some stuff on this, that's a little dissenting. Go. Uh, and all right. Read. All right. Okay, we, okay, got we got I'll it. We got it. We got, we got, we got, we got the point. I mean, first of all, I'll just say that people, I, I whose PhD, people whose whole career in academia has been devoted to study of the Holocaust are amongst the people who've, who I've cited. But I mean, there are a certain subset of people who will just like try to flaunt their claimed expertise as somehow like an intrinsically a rebuttal to you without actually getting well, into the substance. But yeah. Well, uh, again, I want to move on, but just last thing, if you can't take a different opinion, your opinion is useless. And that's all I'll say about Holocaust people that are in academia. Um, look up Carlo Matano, Germar Rudolph and Robert Farisen out there, people, and to get a different opinion. But anyway, uh, as to the, the war in Ukraine, uh, I want to actually mention uh, something because I read Richard's um, piece on this where he was comparing um, the, the, the kind of uh, the escalation in World War II with potential escalation here. We're talking about nuclear weapons and things like that. I mean, do you guys think that Putin may actually have underestimated the willpower of the NATO countries because they're all like, they're all women and gay and like nerdy. And <laughs> I mean, seriously, no, I'm, I'm serious. Do you think that he may have underestimated the will they have to prosecute this war to the extent that they have? It's not the most ridiculous uh, question. Um, you know, there was uh, Hungary uh, at one point, Viktor Orban, um, you know, they made a law that you couldn't uh, propagandize on LGBT issues to minors. This is something that uh, countries do. And then like, you know, the head of the European Commission or somebody was like crying to him and some some Western European leaders were crying <laughs> to him. And so you could, you could, you know, there's, you could have the stereotype that these are, you know, like postmodern, very woke, uh, wimpy uh, people. Um, and you, you can not take them seriously, but then at the same time, but at the same time, you know, they are deadly serious about, you know, the political goals that they care about and the, and the Ukrainian people who were, you know, are actually the boots on the ground who are the people on the ground fighting this war. Uh, you know, they're from a different, uh, they're from a different culture, whether, you know, Western Europeans would have, uh, would have, you know, resisted in a similar way, you know, we, we don't know. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that crazy. I don't think the West itself knew, um, you know, it's like these, uh, atavistic, like this kind of, you know, this kind of like this nationalism, this kind of feelings of like having a foreign enemy. That's always latent. Like no matter what society gets, you know, gets like, no matter how liberal or woke or whatever the culture seems to get, that can be activated, I think, pretty easily. And I think we've learned that uh, in this war. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sort of of two minds as I hear that theory. You know, on the one hand, part of Putin's stated grievance against the U.S. and the broader West is its, you know, decadence um, and its debauchery and, you know, uh, criticisms to that effect. So that could inform his perception of, like, the will that could be summoned to wage a war like this, especially if he's saying that, you know, Ukraine is enthralled to the West and being, you know, subordinated by the West. On the other hand, um, I would find it odd or I wouldn't necessarily anticipate that um, Putin 
would be unaware of the extent to which the U.S. would be willing to invest itself in a conflict such as this and, you know, basically be the bulwark of Ukraine's military and subsidies and so forth. Um, so if, if it's true that he didn't anticipate that in terms of at least the willpower that needed to be summoned to, to carry that out, um, that maybe is an indication that things are more dangerous than even we've recognized because that would be somewhat, that would be divorced from reality. And if he really is that divorced from reality, then uh, that makes it much more perilous um, that he could, you know, maybe do something rash and launch a nuclear strike. Well, when it comes to the the uh, economic toll this is ha- having on Western Europe in particular, um, I, I look at things like Germany, right? The German government is not only resisting its own people. Anna Barbach went out there and said, I don't give a damn what my people think. We're going to support the Ukrainians till the end. But they're even defying German capital. They're defining industry, like industry groups that are saying that they're going to go out of business. They're going to deindustrialize Germany. I mean, Europe could, could be harmed economically forever. Uh, and I mean, what what exactly, what do you guys, we, we talk a lot about Russia and how willful it, and their grit. What exactly would be far enough? We're not talking about the people here. We know that our governments in America and Western Europe do not care whatsoever what the people think. But the elites, what exactly would be taking it or escalating too far, in your opinion? Would well, it even be know, nuclear weapons? I don't know if it's true that like they're not listening to the people, because I saw a poll out of Germany where most people said uh, you know they wanted to sacrifice whatever it took to support Ukraine the over economics. So I don't know if that's actually I don't know if that's actually true that they wouldn't listen to the people. Maybe the you know the public opinion is is completely on board um, with this stuff. It certainly seems to yeah. me. I don't think in America, I don't see any big backlash to helping Ukraine. And you know. I think it it's is. It true is in a, Europe too. It is a challenge, in a way, to the school of thought around foreign policy that you often see mostly among. I don't know. I guess I would, you know could roughly say Marxists or people who are like more economic determinists in a, a sense, as to like the like superstructural motivations for foreign policy action. Um, if the driving motivator. Now, to the point that economic harm is, you know, on a huge scale is willing to be incurred uh, and or, you know, the capitalist class is being overridden in terms of their own self-interest. Again, that's a challenge to that more materialistic uh, interpretation and suggests that it's genuinely ideology. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, the Iraq war was launched my interpretation, anyway, has been uh, always that it was primarily ideological, you know, layered over certain economic factors as well. But the, was the ideology was the principal driver, and ideology seems to be the principal driver here as well. Whereas, you know, for World War One, there's a good argument that it was purely materialistic. Um, so maybe we're just in a new era of uh, what is the primary driver of warfare. 
Hey, uh, well, Michael, uh, why don't we um, let's uh, why don't we close up for tonight since we're going to do the same time? Again yeah, yeah, we're doing right? it the same time tomorrow. So we'll uh, so anybody who we missed, uh, you could just uh, hop on tomorrow. Sorry that we're uh, going to cut it short, but we're doing back to back this week. So. Yeah, so we'll be back because it's. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more news by then, and this is yeah. uh, important stuff. There's a lot more to talk about. So, uh, okay, cool, man. Thanks, everybody. And thanks. All right, bye-bye.